This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Groundbreaking paranormal researcher Joshua P. Warren is here for the entire two hours. I think I've pulled him out of the uh, out of an experiment in the desert uh, out in Nevada where he's working on some kind of paranormal experiment. He's always in the field or in his lab working on something. Uh, so to have Joshua here for two hours, well, let's just say you are in the right place at the right time. We're all very lucky. Joshua has a new podcast, relatively new. I believe he launched in the fall of 2020. It's called Strange Things, and we'll find out about that. We'll talk about Secret Ways to Manifest, The Laws of Attraction. In fact, he wrote a book about that called Use the Force, A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction. We'll talk about shape-shifting immortals. How's that? Psychokinesis, how to move things with your mind, just like a Jedi, uh, and much more. We'll also carve out some time for you to call in with comments, your stories, questions, and we'll uh, take questions as well from the YouTube live chat. And yes, we are live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, in addition to uh, going out live on the radio, 50,000 watts of wonderful weirdness, Sumer Radio AM 740, the largest broadcast footprint of any radio station in North America. So this program is heard on Zoomer across Ontario, parts of Manitoba and Quebec, along the U.S. Atlantic seaboard, Maine, to Minnesota and south to the Carolinas. Now, Joshua uh, is uh, from Asheville, North Carolina, in the uh, the beautiful Blue Mountains, and uh, but he's in Nevada tonight. Joshua has spent 25 years as a professional paranormal investigator, winner of the University of North Carolina Thomas Wolfe Award for Fiction. He's the author of over 20 books, including How to Hunt Ghosts, The Secret Wisdom of Kukul Khan and Use the Force, A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction. I just mentioned that one. A correspondent for Coast to Coast AM. He's appeared on the Travel Channel, History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, Sci-Fi, and was uh, an on-screen credited consultant for Warner Brothers. He owns the Asheville Mystery Museum in Asheville, North Carolina, and the Bermuda Triangle Research Center 
in Puerto Rico. As I say, he's in Nevada tonight. Joshua, welcome back. How are you, my friend? It's so good to be with you. Thank you. I am doing great. And, uh, you know, I mentioned to you just before we went on the air, I've spread myself so thin, I don't even participate in that many interviews anymore. But when I hear from you, I love it. I drop everything because uh, you just have such a great show. You bring such a wonderful insight to all these subjects. And so it's, uh, it's always a thrill to have some time with you on the air. Ah, oh, wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. We're the Mutual Appreciation Society. And I have to say... Uh, the mighty Aphrodite, my lovely bride, is a huge fan, and I mean, I always want to get you on the uh, on the program. But sh- this was a command performance. She said, "Please get <laughs> Joshua back on." She carries that sigil uh, around in her wallet whenever she goes to the convenience store to buy a lottery ticket. She pulls it out, and um, uh, so I want to talk about sigils a little bit later. But first, let me ask you: What did I interrupt in the desert? What were you doing out in the desert tonight? <laughs> well, you know, I've spent the past four years here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I created the Creepy Vegas Ghost and UFO Show. It's the only show of its kind in the world. It's a nonfiction presentation that we do at this magnificent bar here in Vegas called Millennium Fandom, which is the number one pop culture and cosplay bar in the world, as far as I understand. And what we do is for one hour, we show you the very best evidence of ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, time warps, uh, things related to Area 51, all these things from this spot we know as the Nevada Triangle, which we can get into a little more if you'd like as well. And you not only get to see this evidence, but we have all kinds of items there that you can actually touch. We have haunted items, we have UFO debris, uh, we have quite a few surprises, and so um, people come from all over the world to experience this show, and we had to close it down, of course, for most of 2020 because of COVID, so we are just now restarting that show this month on June 19th, and we'll run it at least once a week, and so, so much has happened (laughs) over the past year that I'm now sort of updating the show and getting even more like fresh data. And so right now, whenever there is a new UFO sighting or something else bizarre, I'm rushing out into the desert and I'm collecting this brand new evidence to bring back and put in the show. And so what I was doing in particular today has to do with the time warp that I discovered. Uh, You may recall back in 2018, I was on my way from here in Vegas to Area 51, which is about a two-hour drive. I was heading toward the town of Rachel. And to make a very long story short, I had this device called a differential time rate meter, which is supposed to always measure a constant consistent flow of time. But at this one sort of nondescript spot on the side of the road, I found that time actually slowed down by a fraction of a second, which is a big, big deal. That's not supposed to happen. Right. And then it turns out later on, that site, much to my surprise, is one of the biggest UFO hotspots in the world where people have not only videotaped, seen and videotaped a lot of these UFOs, but there have even been close encounters. And so um, just recently, I did a conference here in Vegas. I presented it, and uh, a guy named Jason came here from... Colorado, and he went out to that time warp location with some third generation night vision goggles. And when there was nobody else around, and he's just there in the middle of the night, this glowing form 
appeared right next to this time warp location and it it, it looks almost ghostly and it's floating around and so I, I've been back out there uh, trying to get even more data and basically what I could tell you is that um, when you're out there it, it's it's really spooky because if you've never been to Vegas before if somebody's listening you've never been to Vegas Vegas is an island in the middle of the desert so when you're here, you feel like you're in the center of the world with all the lights and the buildings and the glitz and the glamour. But then you drive just you know, 10, 15 minutes outside of that, and your cell phone signal is gone. And sometimes you don't see a gas station for 75, even 100 miles, depending on what direction you're going. And you're really out there on your own. You feel very isolated. So I was out there taking some measurements, and I did find a few interesting things today, but nothing mind-blowing, so I'm going to keep going back because I'm determined to gather as much fresh stuff as possible before we we, uh, we revamp the show. And if you're going to be in the Vegas area, just go to creepyvegas.com and come join us on June 19th. Fantastic. Well, when they let us out of a lockdown up here, I'm going to get down there and join you one of these days. i got to ask you about the new podcast. It started in the fall. This is... Uh, Coast to Coast AM's Paranormal Podcast Network, Strange Things. So tell people a little bit what it's about and how they can listen. Yeah, thank you. It's such an honor to to be I really one of the very first uh, podcasts on the new iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. You know, I started appearing on radio shows about 30 years ago. And then about 20 years ago, I started appearing on Coast to Coast AM when Art Bell was still the primary host. And what an honor that was. And then shortly after that, I was hired by Clear Channel in Asheville, North Carolina, to be a professional radio host on uh, News Radio 570 WWNC, which it's the largest AM station in that area. And so uh, I started off doing your typical like drive time political talk, which I do not miss that at all. <laughs> and then uh, I created a show called Strange, excuse me, it was called Speaking of Strange. This word strange just stuck with me for a while. So I created Speaking of Strange which was live every Saturday for about 15 years and uh, did very, very well. It was the number one show in its time slot in the market that reached parts of several states. And I would have continued doing it. I could still be doing it today. But when I decided to make this life-altering move to Puerto Rico in 2013 so that I could study the Bermuda Triangle, I gave up that show just so I could could go travel and do this research. And so then I started my own little independent podcast that I do once in a while called Joshua P. Warren Daily. So I've, I've, I've been very comfortable in this sort of host role or this role of guiding a podcast, but it was a big surprise to me when last year I received a call from Tom Danheiser there at Premier Radio Network saying, hey, listen, we're going to create this new paranormal podcast network, and we would like for you to have a show. And uh, he came up with the name Strange Things. And I said, well, <clears throat> what do you want me to talk about? And he said, you can talk about whatever you want. And for me, that was what sealed the deal. Because, as you know, Richard, it's very easy to get sort of pigeonholed into one category, like this is the ghost guy, or this is the UFO guy, or this is the Bigfoot guy, or this is the psychic guy. And I've never... I've never seen this field that way. I, I believe that all these things are connected yeah. at a certain level, and I, I, I like to, to study it all and talk about it all and mix it all up. And that's what I'm able to do 
with this podcast, Strange Things. It's free, comes out every week, it's one hour, and if you just go to strangethingsshow.com, you'll see the links to the different platforms where you can listen to it. And so, uh, yeah, it's wonderful to uh, to be in, in the company of, of you and so many other wonderful hosts there working for Premier Radio Networks. Fantastic. All right, strangethingsshow.com. Yes, and, huh? and then you can you can subscribe and and get it delivered right to your your um, mobile phone or your desktop every week. Uh, so you mentioned Asheville, and uh, you have deep deep roots in in North Carolina. You have uh, I both I believe on both sides of your family you go back like hundreds of years. Yes, they, they must you you must have grown up. With so many legends, so much folklore, I'm guessing, you know, because obviously, where did your interest in this come from? It must have come from, in part, from your your relatives, distant relatives, and the stories. They must have so many ghost stories. And what was it like uh, with that kind of lineage and legacy growing up? You know, for me, ghost stories and, and legends and Native American tales, all that stuff was so common that I almost just assumed everybody grew up that way. Uh, because my, as you said, my family on both sides had been in that area since the 1700s. Um, and of course, as listeners may or may not realize, the first time the English tried to settle the new world, so to speak, they went to North Carolina and they set up this colony and uh, everybody vanished. And the lost day, colony, yeah. Yeah, nobody knows what happened. So that's the first sort of establishing mystery from my neck of the woods, so to speak. And then eventually there were some English people who went to Virginia. And uh, one of my great-great-great-great-grandfathers, he got a land grant, which, which sent him down to western North Carolina. So on both sides of my family, though, uh, I had big families. My mother was one of 10 children. My father was one of seven children. And on both sides of the family, we had musicians, uh, but especially on my mother's side of the family. So these are guys who, who would sit around and they could play anything, okay? I don't, I don't care what you give them a guitar, a banjo, a mandolin, a dulcimer. And they could sit around and not just tell stories. But sing the old songs, you know, the old Scotch-Irish songs and things like that about places like Brown Mountain, where you have the Brown Mountain lights and, um, and the Ballad of Frankie Silver, this woman who was hanged and haunts the mountains and all. So yeah, it, was a, it was the richest possible environment for me to appreciate how that hearing these old ghost stories, at very least, was a great way of keeping history alive. Uh, there are a lot of things that we would not even remember at all about our past if it weren't for some uh, sensational ghost story that, that still makes it seem relevant. And so if you combine that with the genuine paranormal experiences that my family had, and I'm, I'm sure I told you I had an uncle uh, back in the 1930s, a great uncle, whose picture was taken. And when the picture came out, he didn't have a head. Whoa. And then a month <laughs> later, he was sitting on the porch of their old farmhouse reading a magazine, and they went out to bring him his lunch. The magazine was there, but he was gone. His name was Claude Calloway, and he was never, ever seen or heard from again. Okay, wow. this happened. No, I've never like, heard that story, Joshua. Really? That's yeah. Right. Blink of an eye. Okay, this, and that was a big tragedy. 
in my family because you know they never had closure you know and uh and it would it would have been a, a disturbing enough situation on its own but then you combine it with this sort of phantasmal photograph that was taken a month before it becomes even more eerie and then you have all of these sort of psychic experiences that people have had i recently interviewed my mother peggy on strange things and it's the first time i've ever interviewed my mother that i can recall and she was great because i wanted her to come on and talk about some of the experiences that she has had throughout her life with what she calls her esp and my mom is not one of these people who uh you know runs around sensing things and and, and has this sort of like you know nebulous idea about science and and emotion and all i mean she's a she's a very rational she's a business person she's an entrepreneur but she's always had this incredible uh ability to to sense things that were going to happen in the future and uh for example it saved my life when i was just uh practically a baby she said that I had crawled out of my car seat and gotten in the back of kind of this little station wagon that my dad and, and my mom were in. And uh, all of a sudden, my mom had this terrible premonition, and she turned around. And she says, my God, if we got rear-ended, uh, that would kill him. And so she crawled into the back, and she put me back into my car seat. And she said, not even 30 seconds later, boom. Uh, truck hits the back of their car, crushes that whole area in. And my, she oh, my that I would have died if it hadn't been for that. And so there are many, many stories like that my mom can tell. So in a nutshell, because of me growing up hearing all of these amazing stories about the past and the traditions of that area, and a lot of them you know, influenced by the old European tales, and then having weird things happen to my family, and then witnessing firsthand a lot of these you know, sort of psychic things, it opened my mind a lot to the reality of the paranormal. And that's what first inspired me to go out and start writing about these places and publishing articles in the local newspaper. But it still, even then, took me years before I started having some of my own paranormal encounters which were life-altering, and what that shows you is that uh, paranormal is called paranormal because it doesn't happen as often as a lot of people would lead you to believe. When it does happen, it's a big deal, though. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, you mentioned um, the Brown Mountain uh, Lights, and which is near Asheville. And I, it was one of your earliest podcast episodes. It might have been the first one, actually. I'm trying to remember. But you talked about this line. Um, if you go east from Brown Mountain, where these strange multicolored balls of light, you know, are seen sort of smashing into the mountainside and, and so forth. No explanation as to what they are. And you go east from there, and you and you took us on this amazing journey, like in a straight line east from there, and it connects to all of these other strange uh, places. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, you know, Asheville is in the mountains in the western part of the state, and we have some of the world's most pure quartz crystal there. Uh, which I think is interesting because we always hear about this relationship between electricity and electromagnetism and paranormal manifestations. And when you apply a little stress to quartz, it produces all of this amazing electromagnetic energy. And uh, there may be a, a connection there. But, you know, Asheville, the mountains there are the, – the, 
they're the oldest mountains in North America. And if you start drawing a line east of there, well, then you finally hit the area around Brown Mountain. And the Brown Mountain lights are these multicolored balls of light that have appeared floating on and around this ridge at night for hundreds of years. No one has ever explained what they are. And it's not just a matter of seeing the lights. There's also this entire sort of culture of bizarre phenomena that that goes with them. Uh, UFO sightings and abductions and, and creatures and time-space warps and men in black. And in fact, I just finished a two-part series uh, all about the, my story of the Brown Mountain Lights uh, on my podcast, Strange Things. That's the latest one that was just uh, posted was part two of that. And so it's, uh, that's almost like a miniature Bermuda Triangle. You continue drawing that line east. You finally hit this section around the middle of the state where we have what's called the Devil's Tramping Ground, which is this big, barren circle in the woods. And nobody can figure out why that nothing will grow there. And they claim that if you take a stone and put it in there or something similar, that the next day it will be removed. And so for hundreds of years, the old timers have said, this is where the devil walks around in a circle at night, mulling over all the things he's going to do to humankind and then kicking, you know, kicking things out of his way. You continue drawing that line. You finally reach the coast of North Carolina where so many ships have sunk. They call it the graveyard of the Atlantic. And then right off, the coast there you have um the area around roanoke where we had the lost colony where they all disappeared and if you keep drawing that line east you finally more or less hit the island of bermuda the top point of the so-called bermuda triangle and i find these uh, alignments and even these patterns uh, fascinating because it reminds me of how when when benjamin franklin used to travel back and forth between our country and Europe, uh, there was a big mystery that, I mean, people were aware of it, but nobody really explored it that much. Why would it take you like a week or two longer to get back from Europe than it would to get to Europe? Okay. Everybody knew that was the case, but nobody knew for sure why. So Benjamin Franklin used to drink this wine called Madeira, a Spanish wine. And when he would take these voyages from America, to Europe, he would dip these wine bottles in the water once in a while off the side of the ship and just take the temperature of the water and plot it. And over time, he realized by looking at how he connected all these dots that there is this thing he called the Gulf Stream, which flows from our country toward Europe. And you can almost envision it being like a warm river that flows within the ocean. And, it, right, and once you right. know where that is, well, you can follow that. And you can save a lot of time. The funny thing is, even after he published this information, it was about four years before people acknowledged it. And all that time, they could have saved untold <laughs> amounts of money if they just paid attention to his work. Jo Joshua, so, i got to jump in here. Pardon the interruption. We're going to take a time out. I didn't know that it was Franklin that discovered the Gulf Stream. Fascinating. We always <laughs> learn so much when Joshua drops by, and he'll stay with us for the full two hours. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio.
To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Joshua P. Warren, joshuapwarren.com. And the uh, the new podcast is Strange Things. That's part of iHeartMedia and uh, the Coast to Coast AM podcast network. You can go to strangethingsshow.com to subscribe. We were talking about um, uh, Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, and uh, discovering the Gulf Stream and uh, how that wasn't really understood or appreciated until years later. Uh, Was there anything you wanted to add to that before we move on? Yeah, actually, I'm sorry. I just stepped back in the room, and I think you want me to follow up. Is that right? On, yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, Benjamin Franklin, he um, he found that there were all these dots he could connect in order to uh, to discover a pattern which would represent something about the physical makeup of the Earth. And so when you have these other patterns that are known, like, for example, the Bermuda Triangle – it's reminded me of his experiment and how that when you start connecting these dots, um, it shows you something uh, bigger about what's happening on our planet. And here, for example, in Nevada, where we have what's called the Nevada Triangle, this is an area between Las Vegas and Reno, Nevada, and Fresno, California. Uh-huh. And within that triangle, an average of three airplanes vanish every month. Every month. And so we're talking about over the past 60 years, uh, over 2,000 planes have vanished here. That's more, way more than in the Bermuda Triangle. My uh, I had You no might idea. even, yeah, exactly. And, and, and you, you remember Steve Fawcett, for example? Yes, I was just going to mention Fawcett, yeah. 2007, beautiful day. He goes out and flies this very routine route, almost like a Sunday drive for him. And then he, boom, he's just gone. He just disappears. And years later, they found what they thought may have been some of his remains, but nobody can explain what happened to him. And he was the most experienced aviator in the world. Uh, And so what's even odder is that you can kind of understand why that when a plane or a boat or something like that vanishes in the Bermuda Triangle, how that, well, that thing's going to sink down so far below the water, well, we'll never find it. You can kind of, you, you can rationalize that. But here, you're talking about mainly barren mountains with, I mean, very little vegetation. Sure, there are lots of cliffs and rocks, but you have very good visibility compared to other parts of the world. And furthermore, you have some of the most sophisticated technology here around all these military bases, including Area 51 and, of course, the Nellis Air Force Base, in order to track these objects. And so why do so many things disappear here? And then you start digging deeper and you realize, hey, it's not just that. We've got monsters here. We've we've got all kinds of haunted places. We have the time warps, etc. And so, that's why you know I, I've always thought places like uh, like Asheville and and Puerto Rico and Las Vegas they are they are part of a greater underlying system of energy. And if we can figure out what that pattern looks like, then we'll be able to even predict more easily where these paranormal phenomena will occur in the future. Right. And you talk a lot about energy. And the idea uh, is whenever we see 
a UFO or a ghost. Um, there is this associated associative energy, electromagnetic or electrostatic charge that's in the air. So, I mean, this is one of the things you're you're trying to piece together is where does this energy come from that allows these things to manifest or to appear in in our dimension or our reality? Yes, in fact, I believe that's one of the things that distinguishes me from a lot of the other paranormal researchers. Um, I did not really, despite you know my my interest in all the old ghost stories and stuff, I really did not pursue all of this just as a thrill seeker, because I have always had a very sort of uh, scientific engineering point of view on the world. I've always been. Uh, I mean, I was I was at my own little laboratory, you know, when I was a kid in the basement, and it's a wonder I didn't you know kill somebody or some something <laughs> at some time, and um, so. I, for about 15 years, you know, I worked in a laboratory operated by Charles A. Yost, who was a NASA Hall of Fame engineer, and uh, we worked on all kinds of very serious projects, and so uh, I understand the scientific method, and what I always found most amazing was the idea that when people experience something paranormal, usually... This thing, according to what they are able to perceive, just spontaneously appears does something that requires an enormous amount of energy of some kind, and then it disappears. And I wondered, well, what, where did the power come for this? Where are the batteries? What, you know, what's the power supply? And you can say that very easily if you're looking at something like a UFO. Well, how is this, how is this thing flying around? I mean, uh, but then even when it comes to seeing something like a glowing apparition, well, why is it glowing? What's making that happen there? And, and I felt that from a, a very practical standpoint, if you can take some of these paranormal phenomena and back-engineer them, so to speak, you might be able to tap into much more uh, powerful and readily accessible sources of energy that surround us every day uh, than we realize. And this is similar to the idea of maybe tapping into a zero point or some kind of vacuum-based energy. But it's like either, either there's a power supply that's coming from somewhere – that we haven't learned to tap, or these beings are not truly appearing and disappearing. They just look to us like they are because they are invisible most of the time. And you have to sort through these experiences encounter by encounter and case by case to try to say, okay, what's the point of all this? Why are we investigating these things other than just being curious? In my opinion, it's because if we figure out how this works, there's a practical benefit there. Right, right. You mentioned in one of your early podcasts, I think the actually was the first one, you you have compasses all over the place. You always have compasses nearby, in your lab, maybe on your person, because when we're talking about these uh, electromagnetic an anomalies that accompany, seem to accompany paranormal uh, activity, th those compasses go haywire. And it happened, your very first podcast, right? You were recording and you looked down and your compass went kaflooey. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's one of the simplest things that you can do is, is get yourself a compass and wear it on a bracelet or just like I do spread compasses around your home or your office and a compass should always point north. So if it's not, 
something is affecting it. And so that is to say, if you get around something that's big and metal, well, that might have an impact, but it's still not going to make that thing tend to spin around. It'll just sort of deviate from north. If you look down and you see a compass and it's spinning, and this is something that's also uh, reported happening around the time warp location here in, in outside of Las Vegas, then there is some type of, of major disturbance that is occurring within your proximity. And what we find is that, you know, electromagnetism really is that one form of energy that glues everything together. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, you can, you can transduce electromagnetic energy or change it, that is to say, into all other related forms that we can measure for different purposes. But that the basic electromagnetic fabric that forms what we consider our known reality is something that is usually quite stable. And when something starts to disrupt it, it, it almost creates these currents within it. And it's when that instability kicks in that you see momentum, you see change, you see dynamic uh, uh, phenomena occurring. And so I think of it as being something like uh, interdimensional weather. So, for example, we have atmospheric weather here on Earth, which is why, you know, you go to Tornado Alley and most days of the year, everything's perfectly fine. But then sometimes these can perfect conditions come together and creates this beautiful, terrifying, organized pattern, which is a tornado that comes through and destroys everything. And it's just because all the conditions are right. And the same thing with the hurricane. So you, you have these times when the conditions form uh, uh, the atmospheric weather. We see the same thing with uh, cosmic weather. And so perhaps, for lack of a better term, there are places where we have what we could call, you know, interdimensional or something like that, dimensional weather. And when things get shifted a little bit, uh, it sends a ripple, it sends a shockwave, it's like a stone in a pond. And sometimes you don't want to be around when that happens. Maybe that's what happened to my great uncle, Claude Calloway, when he was there, <laughs> and he got caught in one of these ripples, and he, he got put into another point in, in space-time or it killed him. You know, we don't. We're not sure about that. I do know that when I was in Puerto Rico, and I would hear all these stories about people who would disappear in the Bermuda Triangle. You know, it, and it, it's funny because a lot of people think of the disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle, but it's more than that. It, it's 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 not just how uh, it's not just the disappearances. It's how they disappear, and it's also other weird things that happen. Okay, creatures I'm that are seen. I got to jump in here. We'll uh, yeah. we'll pick up on that point when we come back. Joshua P. Warren, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay tuned. Back with more in a moment. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Joshua P. Warren. Before we get back to our conversation, just a quick shout out to our Star Chamber patron, uh, Deep Paul. That's his handle, Deep Paul. No location, no last name, no address, but Deep Paul, uh, I truly appreciate your 
uh, support. And uh, if you'd like to become an official Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com slash strangeplanet, patreon.com slash strangeplanet. A number of donation tiers there available, but uh, whatever you feel like giving, again, greatly appreciated and uh, helps us continue this work that we do. So, Joshua, we were talking about the Bermuda Triangle, and we tend to focus on the ships uh, disappearing and the planes disappearing and, and so forth. You said, but there's a lot more going on there than just disappearances. Yeah, well, you know, when we think of these disappearances, because they were popularized primarily in the 1970s by, in the book by Charles Berlitz, uh, we often think of the airplanes going down, for example, the fighters uh, just out of, uh, uh, after um, World War II uh, or various ships. But when you go to Puerto Rico and you spend time there visiting all of these old historic forts and various sites, you learn that there have been many occasions in which individuals have just vanished as they're standing near the water. And this is something that you don't really hear about too much. I'd never heard about this until I went down there. And I'll give you an example. There is an old fort that was built in the night, excuse me, uh, the 1700s called um, San Cristobal. And they have a guard box there called La Garita del Diablo. And this is, which means the devil's guard box. And if, if you were put on the duty that nobody wanted to have, they would tell you to go out to that guard box and stay there all night. And many of the men did not make it. They decided to basically be court-martialed or whatever, then stay out there because they would go out and they would, you know, they would disappear and nobody would be around the next morning. Well, those few men who did make the right decision and turn around and get out of there said that they would be out there all by themselves in the middle of the night with the waves crashing. Now, again, we're going back to hundreds of years ago. So imagine this being in the 1800s and all of a sudden they would see this especially eerie hair raising kind of green glow that would, would begin to appear out over the sea and then it would just slowly get closer and closer and closer, and it would start to look more like a glowing green fog coming toward them. And that is the point at which the smart ones turned around and got out of there. <laughs> now, what's funny about that is in those days, those guys probably had virtually no knowledge about electrical phenomena other than seeing you know, lightning or perhaps when you're out at sea – Sometimes under the right conditions, the guys who were sailors would talk about what they called St. Elmo's Fire, which is when you would look up and you'd look at the top mast of a ship and they would build up an electrostatic charge right. and they would start to glow. But when you're in the laboratory and you start messing around with creating these strong electrostatic charges, uh, they will often appear exactly as these old guys were describing in the 1800s. You create these kind of greenish, sometimes depending on the atmospheric makeup, they can even be purplish or pinkish kind of, of, of illuminations uh, that certainly to the inexperienced eye would look at very least ghostly. And so I've always thought that there was some kind of a charge uh, an, an electrostatic charge that was building up over the ocean at that time, sort of moving across that land from the water 
onto the soil of Puerto Rico, and that if you got caught in that, this would have been what's responsible for that uh, shifting from one dimension to another. So it's interesting to think about that on a personal level and to not just think about being in an airplane that disappears, but you know, look at the descriptions that people were having and, and to, to re-examine their descriptions through modern eyes. Right, right. Well, if anyone is going to crack that mystery, it's going to be you, because no one is even thinking along these lines other than, than you, Joshua, as far as I can tell. Um, I, want to, I want to talk a little bit now, uh, because the mighty Aphrodite is listening. And uh, again, she's, this is a command performance. She wants to find out about sigil. So uh, let's, let's give people a little crash course on what these sigils are. And if they, can, if they want to see an example, they can go to joshuapwarren.com. And um, these are created through cymatics, correct? Yeah, these particular ones are. Uh, and, of course, you know, a sigil is basically just a magical symbol. And they, they date back thousands of years. They have been used in, you know, many different traditions. And I'll give you sort of my interpretation for why that they work as an antenna for channeling a certain type of manifestation, a certain type of outcome. Um, a, a sigil is basically a, um, it's a condensation of an energy form. And what I mean by that is if you take something like a thin piece of metal and you sprinkle sand on top of it, and then you play a tone underneath that sheet of metal, then the sand will snap into all of these beautiful, highly organized patterns. And as you change the tone being played, well then, it, the patterns shift. And you can see very obviously that it is the sound, it is that vibration, which is creating a physical effect, and that you can tell the type of effect you're creating by looking at the pattern that's being created. Right. That's cymatics. That's cymatics. That's, that's cymatics. This is a short segment, uh, Joshua, so pr uh, forgive the uh, <laughs> intrusion here. We're going to come back, and then we'll have clear sailing till the top of the hour. Uh, and then, of course, there's hour two, but we'll continue to talk about sigils, and we'll talk about uh, secret ways to manifest. Uh, we'll talk about shape-shifting immortals. Uh, maybe we'll even get into the Mandela effect. So much to discuss with the groundbreaking paranormal researcher, no one anywhere like him, Joshua P. Warren, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. -T. Joshua P. Warren is here. Uh, well, relatively new podcast. Came out in the, uh, the fall of 2020. You really want to... Uh, subscribe to this. It's just fantastic. And uh, that's Strange Things. You can subscribe at strangethingsshow.com. It's part of the Coast to Coast 
AM Paranormal Podcast Network and iHeartMedia, strangethingsshow.com. So we're talking about sigils. And uh, so these are created through cymatics. You have a, a, a vibration, a, a tone acting upon you know, fine particles, maybe uh, spread over a, um, uh, some sort of a, uh, a surface. Um, and uh, you, you, you get these shapes, these forms. In fact, I was speaking with this, this fellow, and he said in the king's chamber, in, this, in the uh, sarcophagus, uh, they, um, they did that, and they got, uh, and they played this, this tone, and they got an, uh, an Egyptian hieroglyphic. And when they when they did that in a in a cathedral in Wales or Ireland, they got you know those uh, those Celtic I think they call them Celtic chords. They're like uh, uh, I don't know it's like a Gaelic letter or what it, whatever it is. But they got that there uh, when they went to Israel and they did it in a in a temple. They got Hebrew letters. It's so it seems to me as if. Or not to me, but it seems to to these researchers that that's how we got our alphabets. Well, that certainly makes sense. Uh, in fact, there's a whole field called archaeoacoustics where they go back and try to examine some of these ancient sites by by playing tones and by seeing sort of you know how these are forming a uh, a signature that would even create a mental state, for example. And so when we look at cymatics. And we just say, okay, this is basically how cymatics works. It's, it's, it's really just an example of how vibration uh, holds the whole universe together. Mm. Um, and then we say, all right, well, what do we do with this little symbol that's created? Well, again, a sigil, this goes back to the Latin word sigillum, which means seal, more or less. So I started thinking, well, we, we see there's a relationship between the tone uh, well, let me put it this way, between the energy, which creates the tone, which creates the symbol. And this is very much uh, like a form of broadcasting because, to, and just to give everyone listening an analogy, when it comes to traditional broadcasting, uh, if you have two antennas that are trying to communicate with each other, so to speak, the design of the antenna makes a big difference. So these two antennas must be sort of synced up in a certain way for them to be able to send and receive a signal. If, they're, if you have the wrong type of antenna, then they're not going to be able to, to connect with each other. Right. And so what that means is if you have an antenna, that one antenna is capable of both transmitting and receiving and it just needs to be exposed to some type of energy. That's why that these passive RFID chips work, uh, like the kind you might encounter if you were to try to walk out of a store with an item of clothing. You know, often there's a little chip inside there that's passive. It doesn't have a battery hooked to it. It's just sitting there. But then when you go out through the doors, well, it hits it with an active field, and then it wakes up this little chip, so to speak, and the alarm goes off. So... What I decided was to, to see if there would be a way of taking cymatics to the next level, what I call parasymatics, meaning what I would do is I would create a tone and get a symbol, and then I would consider that to be sort of like my carrier tone, and, or, and, and then I would inject into that tone a certain type of goal or affirmation. And so that, and it could be something like, 
I am going to attract more money, or I am going to encounter a ghost, or I am going to be happy and healthy today, or you know, it could be anything. And what I found was that when I would get a tone, and I decided to use water for this because the human body is primarily composed of water and empty space. So it makes sense that if we're dealing with something for humans, by humans, for humans, water is a good way to go. So I took all kinds of different water. I used some salt water from the Caribbean. I used tap water. I, I used tonic water. I tried all these different waters to see what I got the best result from. And then um, I, would, I would hit it with uh, these frequencies, and then I would speak into it these affirmations, and it would change as I was speaking the affirmation. And at the same time, I would be shining uh, lasers on it, and I would be looking at it under both infrared and ultraviolet cameras. And then I would take all that imagery, pull the stills out of it, combine it together, and see what image appeared in the water when that affirmation was spoken. And then I would turn around, give that to my wife, Lauren, who is a wonderful artist, and ask her to sit down and do an illustration of that pattern that the water had given us. And so this would create a final black and white sigil, which to me is a wonderful combination of art and science. Right. And so right. then I put these things for free on my website, joshuapwarren.com, and I told people just go there and uh, just look at it. You know, you, you can put it on your cell phone, you can print it out and stick it on your wall, but look at it throughout your day. Whenever you get a chance, look at it for five seconds, ten seconds, and let me know what happens. And that's been several years ago, and let me tell you, Richard, not a day goes by when I, I don't get some kind of message from somebody in this world telling me about some miraculous thing that has happened by using the sigil. I mean, I, I've gotten numerous people who have had one of the sigils tattooed on him or herself. Because oh, that's this. interesting. Yeah. And so, um, and it's just like, I mean like major stuff. For example, just uh, even a friend of mine recently told me, he said, you know, he was working a dead-end job he didn't like, and then he heard about my sigil stuff, and he said, I started using that sigil within a month. This unbelievable job he he always wanted to to travel the world and he's a single guy doesn't have any kids so he's got a lot of freedom and he got this amazing offer to become an international flight attendant and so he says i get to fly all over the world now i get all this extra downtime i have tons of money and he's just so happy he's like beaming and he showed me his phone he was like look this is what i've had on my phone every day you know and, and it's the sigil and so i believe that when you are around these sigils they're functioning like some kind of an antenna and that i was able to to take a frequency for something good, put it into that pattern, and when you're around that pattern, then that is being transmitted to you, and due to sympathetic resonance, which is the tendency of two things to sort of synchronize, which again is how broadcasting works, uh, it it will make these miraculous things happen for you. And, uh, you know, even, even if we describe this as some kind of a placebo effect, hey, if it works, it works, fine. Right. Right. This is what I love about you, Joshua, this scientific underpinning to, to the paranormal. Uh, it gives it so much credibility. Uh, so the mighty Aphrodite, she carries the sigil that I 
printed uh, for her, oh, probably, what, three, four years ago. And she'll take it to the convenience store when she's, you know, picking her lottery numbers and so forth. And uh, she gets a lot of free tickets. And occasionally she'll win $10 here, $15 there. Um, So, but here's the thing that you said that kind of struck me. And that is you have to look at it. You don't just pull it out of your wallet on, you know, lotto day. You got to look at it more consistently, right? Yeah, the more the better. It it should be something that you, you want to try to look at it at least once a day. But here's a little trick um, that I tell people, and, and a lot of people, I don't care what method that you might be using to incorporate an affirmation into your life. Uh, if you have a symbol or a phrase or, or something like that that you believe helps influence your day and make it better – and you take that and you post it somewhere where you're going to see it every day, like your bathroom mirror or your refrigerator or your steering wheel or something like that. That's all great in the beginning. The problem is, though, after a week or two, you're going to get used to seeing it and you just won't notice it so much anymore. So the trick is take whatever you use as a calendar. If you have a calendar on your phone I'm old-fashioned. I got a big old wall calendar that I write all my stuff on. Um, and go ahead for the next year even, and every two weeks make a note on a certain date, change position of affirmation or something to that effect, so that at least every couple of weeks you're moving it to a new place. And by doing that, it's going to keep it fresh on your mind and keep it activated so that it doesn't just fade into the background like every other piece of clutter in your life. Ah, okay. That's that's great information. All right. We'll, um, we're going to roll into the uh, top of the hour here. Come back. Joshua is staying with us. We'll open up the phone lines. We'll take questions, comments from our YouTube live chat. And uh, we'll talk about, continue to talk about secret ways to manifest. Uh, we'll also talk about shape-shifting immortals. I can't wait for that one. Joshua P. Warren, joshuapwarren.com, the podcast Strange Things. Subscribe at strangethingsshow.com. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. On Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A a quick programming note coming up next week, Gary Heseltine and Don Schmidt from the International Coalition for Extraterrestrial Research. This is a brand new organization uh, comprised of scientists, academics and leading UFO researchers from around the world. Twenty seven countries on five continents. Uh, Gary Heseltine is the uh, the vice president. He'll be uh, in or on in hour one. Again, this is next week. And Don Schmidt, of course, uh, one of the world's foremost Roswell uh, investigators. Don is the American Continental Director. So that's next week on The Conspiracy Show. Now, uh, just a, a quick, uh, couple other quick notes. First of all, I was trying to think of the name of these, um, these Celtic uh, figures. And Mad Pogue 
in the uh, YouTube chat. Thank you. They're the Celtic knot is what I, the word I was looking for, the Celtic knot. And uh, also, Eddie uh, has a great suggestion for a guest. He wants me to get Ryan on from The uh, the Last American Vagabond. I'll do that. I've, uh, I've watched a few of those. Terrific work. All right. Thank you. Uh, Joshua P. Warren stays with us. Groundbreaking paranormal researcher, author, spent uh, 25 years as a professional paranormal investigator, winner of the University of North Carolina, Carolina Thomas Wolfe Award for Fiction, the author of over 20 books, including How to Hunt Ghosts, The uh, Secret Wisdom of uh, Kukul Khan, and uh, The Use or and Use the Force, A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction, which is basically what we've been talking about. Uh, we mentioned sigils a little bit earlier. And, um, I, oh, I wanted to ask you w- with regards to sigils. Do they go stale? I mean, uh, this is the, the one that the mighty Aphrodite carries around in her in her wallet. It's been there for three or four years. Did do they lose some of that power of intention in them from time to time? Well, you know, theoretically, they should not. But I find that any time you have a symbol like that 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 you believe is working well for you, uh, you may as well refresh it once in a while. I just print it out again. It's almost like recharging the batteries and something. It doesn't hurt to do that. At very least, doing that will mentally uh, make an impact on you and maybe re-energize your, your amount of attention that you're paying to it. As they say, energy flows where attention goes. Um, so, yeah, there's no harm in, in doing so, but... Um, Theoretically speaking, um, the design is what it is, and it should always operate the same way. All right. Uh, Let me go to the YouTube live chat for some questions. Show Me the Truth 74 asks, uh, are there any updates to the Vegas interstate interstate time anomaly? Uh, Well, you mentioned that off the top, but did you want to just repeat that? This is the Vegas interstate time anomaly. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, you know, it's funny to me that when I discovered uh, that in back in 2018, uh, there was a lot <laughs> happening behind the scenes that I didn't know about, and now we all do. Uh, that was, I mean, like, f- for example, the night that I discovered that was the first time I turned on the TV and the Space Force was announced. Uh, and then, of course, all the A-tip stuff was really starting right. to come out. And, and Harry Reid, who was the senator from Nevada, uh, he was coming out in front of the cameras, at, you know, because he he was the Senate Majority Leader back when A-tip was formed. And so there was this whole place was like there was this center of activity happening around there. And when I got that anomaly, I know they were doing some kind of experiments in the area as well. Uh, they've been very secretive about them, but there was some kind of bomb being tested. And so I thought to myself, okay, I want to know, is this is, is this something that's natural? You know, did I stumble upon a natural time warp, or is this something that was it, it was created here because of government activity? And I have been back to that spot numerous times and taken measurements, and I have not been able to measure the anomaly again. Uh, however... I think I may have just gotten extremely lucky that first time around because even if there was some government experimentation, that would not necessarily explain all of the other sort of extraterrestrial and spooky spiritual things that people encounter there. But the latest thing is that, um, yes, I mentioned earlier today, uh, earlier on the program, there was uh, 
a gentleman from from Colorado named named Jason who came here with night vision and went out there by himself and got some type of a a big spooky light floating around. I'm going to be posting that soon. Uh, he's got it on his Instagram account, but I need to capture that and post it on my social media. Uh, by the way, at Joshua P. Warren is a good way to keep up with breaking news. And then uh, also, there was um, that same night that he was out there, he had a compass with him, and his father was with him, and his father had a compass, and they're standing at the same places. Well, they're standing next to each other at the same place, and yet their compasses are pointing in different directions, and uh, they weren't interfering with each other. And so, like, this kind of stuff continues to happen. People contact me and tell me about missing time that they have. I had a couple that contacted me a few months ago, and they knew nothing about this story. And they were driving from here to, I think, Washington State. And they ended up losing at least two hours of time. And it was such a big deal for them. I mean, they were in the car with their kids that they just got on the Internet later and started researching weird stuff about that area. And they came across my news report and said, holy cow, listen to this, and contacted me. And I interviewed them on my podcast, Strange Things. So so people continue having these experiences, and weird stuff keeps happening there, but I have not been able to document that same anomaly again. Uh, I presume one day I'll be lucky again, but you never know. Uh, all right. Uh, D. Silver asks, uh, Joshua, do you think that paranormal activity is higher during this pandemic? Many are receiving odd dreams, negative energy. What can we do to protect ourselves? Yeah, well, I tend to think that, um, indeed, there has been a lot more uh, paranormal perception during this period of time. Uh, For one thing, you just have to look at the simple reality that when people are confined to one piece of property, they they get to know it on a much more intimate level than ever before. And so, you know, I've heard these complaints from people who said, I lived in a haunted house and I could kind of, you know, live with that for a few hours in, in every day, but not stuck here 24 seven. This is, this is becoming a, a bit much. And so, so people are, are definitely getting the observation time in uh, at these haunted properties. But furthermore, yes, uh, when you have something that creates um, this sort of level of sensory deprivation, it changes the way the mind works in general. That's why there has been such a, a brainwashing campaign going on for a long time in order to just frighten people, just fear, 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 fear. And when you start really scaring people, and, and like fortunately for me, uh, I look at a lot of this fear-mongering that goes on in the mainstream media, and it doesn't bother me that much because I just don't believe it. I know too much about how the media works, and you do too, Richard. You, yeah. We look at it, and we can tell what they're doing. Okay? <laughs> and so, But there are people out there who are scared to death, and when, when people get into that mindset, they become desperate, and if they feel like that you know, the, their their normal way of doing things is not going to help them or save their lives, they get open-minded really quickly and, and start learning about other ways of viewing the world, and they start reaching out for alternative viewpoints. And so all of that stuff, I think, kind of combines in order to uh, to create a more paranormal life 
for, for the average person, especially now that you can talk about aliens and UFOs, and most people take you seriously now um, because of what's been happening with our, our government releases. But uh, also, I mean, you know, it's like this stuff that we've been talking about forever, This all this weird stuff, I mean, it turns out it's real. And we, we are just now getting the technology to document some of it properly. But uh, eventually the stuff that used to be paranormal is just going to be normal. And we're seeing that happen more and more every day. Wow, that's, you know, one of the, the most cogent, uh, concise, and best explanations I've ever heard. Because I've had this question before about, you know, more paranormal activity during the pandemic. Uh brilliantly stated uh yy anella asks can we get an update on robert the haunted doll now robert had a sigil uh um you know on somewhere and encoded or embedded i guess on the doll somewhere didn't he yes i am happy to say i apparently discovered that um, this was over 10 years ago when I went to conduct an extensive investigation of Robert the Doll. For people who don't know, Robert is, I think, the world's most haunted doll. Uh, he's over 100 years old. He lives, so to speak, in a museum in Key West, Florida. And uh, the stories about him go on and on. It said that he comes to life at night and does all manner of things. In fact, uh, on my website, joshuapwarren.com, you can find an ebook I wrote about him. Uh, I have a curiosity shop there, and there's a book called Don't Play With Robert, The World's Most Haunted Doll. And I'll tell you quite frankly that when it came out, I almost got into some legal trouble because there were people that did not want me to publish that book. Um, but nonetheless, I was able to go down there to Key West and have the pretty much the the city government officials agree to remove this big glass case from Robert for the first time in, I think they said, at least four years. They had two, two big dudes with suction cups. They took this thing off of him and allowed me to, with my bag of instruments, do a close inspection of him. And UV light does not pass very well through glass, especially thick glass like they had around him. So the, one of the first things I thought was, I'm going to shine a UV light on this doll and see if anything appears. And sure enough, only visible under UV was this little symbol that was on his right sleeve that looks very much like an ancient sigil that I was able to later locate in a grimoire that reminds me of uh, the sigil to animate the dead or reanimate Whoa, the dead. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, I think I was the first person who ever shined a light on him because if anybody else had wanted to do it, they wouldn't have been able to get it to work through that glass. But other than that, you know, here's one of the big, I think, developments with Robert the doll. At that time, nobody was even sure exactly how he was made. Uh, and I mean, the story was always that there was this disgruntled servant who worked for this very prominent family, and they had a little boy named Robert Eugene Otto. And so kind of to get back at the family, she made a giant voodoo doll, for lack of a better term, of this kid. And, uh, and they, called the, they, the, they called the doll Robert, and, and the kid became obsessed with it. Well, it turns out... Uh, there is this great writer and researcher in Key West named David Sloan, and he discovered that Robert 
the actual doll was, in fact, a, a rare German Steiff doll. And I say rare because he was much, much bigger than the average Steiff doll. So they think he was like some kind of a store display model. And the family had connections to, to Germany. And so his theory was that the mother of the family traveled to Germany and, and somehow obtained this doll. But here's, here's something that makes people skin crawl a little bit. Robert the doll is dressed in a little sailor outfit. Well, that outfit was never on that doll. They found an advertisement for that doll, and that doll was dressed as a clown. And so a lot of people don't like clowns, and they don't like haunted dolls. So you can combine those things together. <laughs> That's a bad combination. <laughs> yes. So he was this rare, very valuable, big German Steiff doll that I believe was obtained by this person who, who was a servant of the family and, and modified in various ways uh, to become what we now know as Robert the Doll. So that's, uh, that's a really cool development. And uh, aside from reading my book, uh, which is just an ebook, you should also check out uh, David Sloan's book if you want some of that more recent information. All right. Fantastic. Great update on Robert the Doll. Now, I got to I got to steer you in this direction because this is uh, one of my favorite podcast episodes you've done thus far. And this is on the uh, the shape-shifting immortals. Uh, and the podcast begins with the question, you know, are they real? And uh, you say there are some actually some historical figures who may have been shape-shifting immortals. So what are we talking about when we're talking about immortal? Are we talking about uh, like vampires? Yeah, I think we are. Uh, certainly one form of that. Uh, one of the first historical figures, of course, who comes to mind is the Count of St. Germain, who was this um, extremely famous, brilliant, mysterious European who traveled around the courts in the 1700s. He claimed he was 500 years old, so maybe he's been around since then, <laughs> or had been around before then. Um, and he was, they say, the most articulate speaker. He could speak multiple languages. He was a, a devilishly talented musician and composer. He was a great scientist and chemist and had this encyclopedic knowledge of facts and figures and was so charming that everybody wanted to have him at his or her uh, palace. And uh, the stories go on and on about the fact that this guy was such a prodigy. He claimed that he had descended from some Transylvanian prince. Nobody knows what to really believe about this guy. But he seemed to have a lot of money, and uh, he definitely knew how to work the royal crowd. And he had so much skill and talent and charisma that people were convinced that if anybody could live, figure out how to live for hundreds of years, then it might be him because this is probably what you would, you would learn after hundreds of years of life. If you can live for hundreds of years and be healthy, then you can probably learn to do all kinds of great supernatural things. So he may have been one of those people. You can look him up. But when it comes to the topic of shape-shifting in general, it sounds unbelievable at face value. But then you have to think about, okay, we are all shapeshifters. 
look at how you appeared when you were a baby. Uh, think about how you're going to look in 10 years. We are all shape-shifting every moment. We're just doing it very slowly. So if we know that shape-shifting is real, why should we so quickly discount out of hand the possibility that some types of people or beings might be able to shape-shift a little more quickly? And if we consider that reality is not a fixed thing as we used to envision it, that it is a fluid thing as quantum physicists tell us, then the idea that certain genes can be expressed physically one moment a certain way and then switch momentarily to be expressed another way and then back, it's not so unbelievable. And furthermore, if you look at, say, what, what humans do as, uh, as hunters, you know, you see hunters, they dress up like deer sometime and go out in the field and, you know, they'll sit around with, with a, a deer suit on and deer urine or whatever to take a picture or take a shot at a deer. Uh, if there are other beings here, then we might sometimes interpret them as, as shape-shifting beings because they disguise themselves as humans, like aliens, you know, putting on the human mask. So there are lots of different ways we can sort of rationalize these stories about shapeshifters, but also you have to remember it's always in the eye of the beholder. So you and I both are in a bar or whatever, and we look at a person, and we, we both comment on how that person may appear, and that person may look different to each of us. And so it also has something to do with the connection between the observer and the observed, but I do believe that, hey – uh, it's, is, it, is it probable that we have shape-shifting reptilians and vampires and beings like that running around? I wouldn't say it's probable, but I would certainly say it is absolutely possible. Right. Uh, was it Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins who a few years ago came out and said that he believed he had seen a shape-shifter? Someone came up to him. Uh, I'm not sure if it was at a nightclub or a concert, and he believes he witnessed this person shape-shifting right before his eyes. Do you remember that? I think he revealed it in an interview. I, yeah, I remember something about that, and then also I've gotten plenty of emails from people over the years who have told me similar things. Uh, in fact, I, I believe in that podcast I did about this, I, I read at least one or two emails from people who said they'd had encounters with these shapeshifters. And, you know, it does make you think about how egocentric that we are. We, we tend to view everything else in terms of ourselves without really thinking too much about the fact that we don't we're not even really the dominant species on this planet insects are and you know there will come a day when all humans are gone i'm sure but the insects will be everywhere uh and and keith richards <laughs> possibly keith richards yeah and uh you know we're going to be the, like the dinosaurs one day and so uh, look at what some of these insects can do. I, I've been studying amoebas at my house. I've, I've studied them for years, but I just put out a press release the other day. I'm not sure if you've seen it about, um, well, it's, it, it's sort of amoeba-based, but before I get into that, if you want to talk about it, you know, the, the thing about an amoeba is an amoeba is just a blob. It's, it's a single-celled organism. It's nothing but a, a thin a little sack of skin. And it doesn't have a brain, it doesn't have a nervous system, and yet it hunts for food, 
It is able to move from one type of water to another depending on what it likes and doesn't like. It's clearly uh, intelligent. It's alive and it's intelligent. And we look at it and we say, where is the interface between this thing and uh, life and what we call life? That's something to ponder. That's something we uh, to ponder, Joshua, as we head into a break, and we'll pick up on that very point when we come back. Joshua P. Warren, my guest, groundbreaking paranormal researcher and host of Strange Things, an amazing podcast, strangethingsshow.com, to subscribe. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we're back with Joshua P. Warren, groundbreaking paranormal researcher, author, host of the podcast Strange Things, strangethingsshow.com to subscribe, part of the Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. We were talking about amoebas of all things uh, and uh, you, you, you've been studying amoebas and as you noted uh they don't have a brain um and and yet uh you know they hunt how do they interface i believe was the word you used so let's let's continue on in that vein yeah and you could easily say an amoeba is a shape shifter it's a shape shifting being it's a living ball of slime like so many other creatures that we see in the oceans for example and we know that this is a form of life that is known it's it's most famous for its shape-shifting ability and when you start assembling cells and you create a more and more complex creature uh it it makes you wonder what happens when you get enough of these shape-shifting cells uh together Uh, I i was talking to uh a friend of mine, he has a, a podcast, Brian Willett, and uh, he was talking about um, sort of how to deconstruct the human psyche. And he said, you take a ballpoint pen and you start removing you know, the cap and then the spring and then the little button from the top. And at what point is it no longer a ballpoint pen? You know, it's a ballpoint pen when you put it all together into one fixed thing that serves a fixed purpose. And so you could say that you can almost break down life into something as as simple as this amoeba, which is a shape shift a shape shifting cell, and then you can wonder how many forms you could take, building back up from that, into uh, something that may have a, an almost chameleon like presence or being. And so there may be forms of life around us that uh, have survived purely because that they are usually in disguise. And I think that if we were surrounded by uh, shape-shifting reptilian types, for example, that would really be the easiest secret in the world to keep because if you tell somebody you've seen it, uh, they laugh it off. They don't believe it. And uh, it goes back to what I've often said about cows. I don't think there's one cow on planet Earth that knows people eat cows. <laughs> Let's hope they don't find out. Yeah. 
And so uh, that's why my mind is so open to the idea that uh, we may not be the dominant life form here. As a matter of fact, we may think uh, much, much more of ourselves. Uh, we might actually just be puppets that are being manipulated by, by some other group of beings that are uh, blending in with us in some way. Right, right. And we're... We're uh, basically grazing here on the surface of the earth, and um, who knows what lies beneath, because people often, uh, well, they think that the reptilians, right, the reptilians are, are uh, they've always been here, they're not from outer space, they're, they're here among us, or they're living below us, and uh, feeding on us. So they may be the uh, the alpha species on the planet. Uh, John H. asks, uh, Joshua, do you think the Ark of the Covenant was still uh, capable of communicating with some higher power? Yeah, that's a great question, John. Um, I've always been fascinated by the Ark of the Covenant. And, uh, you know, when you start looking at how it was designed, uh, just based upon what we read in the Bible— uh, it certainly sounds a heck of a lot like a capacitor or a condenser of some sort. It certainly yes. has many of the characteristics that we would apply to that type of more modern uh, circuitry, so to speak. Um, and so, to me, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of technical detail in the Bible that cannot be ignored about not just the Ark of the Covenant, but even something like Ezekiel's will. You know, Ezekiel the prophet talked about seeing what he described as wheels spinning within wheels, and they could pretty much move in any direction, up, down, left, right, but they were controlled by a spirit within them. And to me, it's, it's a great description of what we're often seeing these days in terms of UFOs. It's almost like these UFOs, in many cases, are not just a, a silver saucer with a little green man inside the steering wheel. We're looking at something that almost uh, seems to have its own cyborg-like sense of artificial intelligence. And so uh, you, I, you can go back and look at the Ark of the Covenant and you can say there is so, there's so much specific detail attributed to that design that it, it would beautifully, it would beautifully um, dovetail with the experiences that people attributed to it in terms of it not only being a communication device, but, but also able to produce an enormous amount of, of energy, almost like an electrical or electromagnetic discharge. So I believe that uh, it was some kind of a machine. It probably is similar to Ezekiel's will. Uh, it may have even been able to levitate some on its own. It was an example of a machine that also had a consciousness or a spirit within it, so it almost had its own sense of intelligence. Um, I believe that it, its effect was so practical that uh, it, it led the Israelites to victory uh, against great odds over and over again, which is why it was so revered by people like King Solomon. And my feeling is that it still exists uh, that it's it's it very much still exists. It's still somewhere out there, and uh, I would venture to say that the Ark of the Covenant is probably in the United States somewhere. Ah, interesting, interesting. I have a friend of mine, Rabbi Rabbi Harry Moskov, 
who's kind of a, a Jewish Indiana Jones, and he's looking for the Ark of the Covenant. He thinks it's exactly where it was left, and that was in a chamber beneath what what was the first temple, and then later the second temple, of course, built over top of it, but um, then that temple was destroyed. He says it's right there, but uh, it would be deadly for anyone other than a Levite, I guess, to approach it or to touch it. Um, so whoever goes looking for it better darn well know what they're doing. Um, anyway, let's, uh, let's take another question from our YouTube chat. Solar Warden asks... Uh, Josh, what is your opinion on remote viewing and uh, the late Ingo Swan? Well, you know, I think there's there's a lot to be said for remote viewing. It is a very general term that a lot of people have interpreted in uh, in a specific way. I mean, you find lots of different branches out there, uh, but really, I mean. Remote viewing is is about using some kind of a technique in order to uh, transfer your mind to another point in space-time. And there's no reason that that should even be really an extraordinary concept. Uh, because even if you talk to the smartest cosmologists and astrophysicists out there, they claim that space-time is a flexible thing and that time can flow in either direction What from our point of view, seems the future uh, or the past into the future or the future into the past. Uh, it's all based upon your point of view. It's all flexible. So, so therefore, um, your mind is basically, uh, well, it's an antenna. It's, it's well, I, I call it the wormhole brain. It's constantly funneling information from this other place, the consciousness realm, which is why you know it's such a great mystery for us to even figure out this thing called the mind-body relationship, how those things connect. So you're you're kind of piped into these other positions in space-time anyway. Uh, I think it's just a matter of being able to uh, train your mind to not be distracted by the more immediate concerns in order to take your mind to another place, and. Um, you know, I've never done a lot of extensive, in-depth research specifically on Ingo Swan, but I do know uh, many people who have worked a, a great deal with different kinds of remote viewing techniques. And, you know, one that I think is pretty useful here in Las Vegas, if you're into gambling, is one that I initially learned from uh, Colonel Dr. John Alexander, who, uh, of course, is one of the – they call him one of the men who stares at goats um, – it's called ARV or associative remote viewing, and I'll give you an example of how this can be used in a Vegas casino. So let's say um, my wife Lauren and I go into a casino, and we're going to go up to the roulette wheel, and we're going to bet on either red or black. And if you're not a roulette player, then let me just tell you that there are, are two spaces on the wheel that are green, but all the rest are red or black. So if you bet on red or black, you almost have a 50-50 chance of getting it right. So right. statistically right up front. And then so if you bet on uh, red or black and you get it right, you double your money. So you could walk up and put down a $100 bill and you know 45 seconds later you've got $200. It's an easy way to keep your night of fun going in Vegas if you can nail it every time. So what we will do is 
I will say to Lauren, instead of red or black, because she's good at this, and some people are better, I will say, Lauren, cat or dog? Uh, sun or moon? Uh, is it a flower or a chandelier? Or a guitar or flute? or what? I just like, I come up with some kind of random thing, and I'm asking her to make a choice between these two random things. Now, I know which thing is associated with which color, but she doesn't. Ha, ah, Joshua, i got to jump in again. Sorry for the interruption. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come right back to the uh, uh, associative remote viewing. I think that's what you called it, ARV, and uh, the casinos. Back with more of my conversation with groundbreaking paranormal researcher Joshua P. Warren. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. So, Joshua, you were talking about associative remote viewing. So you and your lovely bride, you go to the casino and uh, you're playing roulette. And instead of betting red, black, you assign each color a different arbitrary thing. Uh, Instead of red, it's a cat instead of blue it's a dog or something like that yes that's exactly right and in doing so um what we are are accomplishing is we are really tapping into the most fundamental principle behind how that um i think even magical thinking works we are distracting the critical intellectual as they say left side of the brain and allowing the more creative, imaginative right side of the brain to take over. And that's why whenever you're trying to get your mind to sort of expand through, through magical thinking, manifestation, you, you, you can often even use these you know, crazy words like abracadabra or bibbidi-bobbidi-boo because this sort of thing is meant to be just enough nonsense in order to sort of, again, tire out or almost distract that intellectual part of the brain so that the part which is more non-judgmental and reactive and emotional, the more organic part of your relationship to the universe is able to to take over. And that is the moment when you have uh, psychic flashes because we live in a world where we're told that doesn't exist more than we're told it does. And, and so, therefore, you, you have to free up that, that analytical, critical thinking part of the mind. And this is just one way of doing it. So try that out. And, and, and it works well either way. She can do the same thing with me. Um, and I've, I've also done experiments where I found that it works better for two people to do that than for a group of people to do that. I'm not sure why that is. I'm still trying to figure that out. That's another thing about my uh, – my podcast, Strange Things, it's very interactive. Uh, I, I am always putting experiments out there that the listeners can participate in. And we take surveys and I reward people for participating in certain types of experiments and give them all kinds of free stuff. Um, and like right now, I have some um, 
some water that's being analyzed at the laboratory here in Las Vegas that we used in a collective consciousness experiment. But anyway, that's a good lesson for anybody listening that uh, if you don't want to go to a casino, okay, we'll try it out with just flipping a coin, you know, sit down with somebody that you think you have connection with and don't tell that person what you have associated with heads or tails and see if they get it right more than 50-50. And you might be surprised at how easy it is to use that as a training tool to tap into something like a remote viewing skill. Interesting. Fascinating stuff. All right. back. To, uh, let's go to the phones, actually. Mitchell is checking in from Burlington. Hello, Mitchell. Welcome. Hi. Um, I heard about the... So there's the ET for the Atari 2600. It got buried in the New Mexico desert. And uh, I'm wondering about that, like, I've heard that the game itself was like a map of Area 51. I hadn't heard that. Does that sound <laughs> familiar, Joshua? <laughs> well, you know, Mitchell, I actually, um, I'm, a, I'm a geek. I love playing video games. And I remember watching a magnificent documentary all about the infamous E.T. game. I actually had that uh, when I was a kid, so I, and it, it did suck. It was I can see why they consider it the worst video game of all time. But yeah, you know, it was a big deal when they found those and they, they, they dug them up and now they're in museums, but I have never heard anything about that game being connected to Area 51. So I think that I would have heard about that. Uh, so how did you hear about it, Mitchell? Do you recall? I um I saw it in a movie um called the Angry Video Game Nerd movie. Uh-huh. Huh. Well, okay, well I'll look into that. Thank you for the tip, but uh yeah, if, if, I might have to incorporate that into my Creepy Vegas Ghost and UFO show. So there you, you go. may have you may have taught me something. Thanks for that call. <laughs> All right, Mitchell. All right. Uh we'll get to uh Skip on the line from Connecticut, a regular visitor and uh, more questions from the YouTube live chat. When we come back, Joshua P. Warren, again, the host of Strange Things, strangethingsshow.com to uh, subscribe, part of the Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1 866 740 4740. All right, a few minutes remain with Joshua P. Warren, joshuapwarren.com, and again, the podcast, Strange Things, strangethingsshow.com to uh, subscribe. And uh, let's go to Skip from Connecticut on the line. Hey, Skip, good morning. Hey, how you doing? Uh, yes, Joshua, uh, I want to ask you about a statement. Uh, the present present, the present past, and the present future. Uh, that would be what someone said to me. That's a, what, what do you think of that statement? And also, you know, in, in all your research, uh, what would you say, uh, would you say the fact that, like, mountain ranges are untraversed is a factor? Uh, I know the oceans and, and the aquifers are, are not really that well looked at, but would you also say the mountains, uh, really nobody's been there in many cases? 
Yeah, well, uh, okay, a couple interesting questions. Uh, thank you, Skip. When it comes to you know the present, present, and the present future, and the present past, uh, I think really what it boils down to is the impossible task we have of even defining the present. And what I mean by that is you say, how long is the present? And someone could say, well, the present is one second. Well, all right, but even a second has a beginning and an end. So that means you ha would have a past and a future within your present. So you can never logically come up with a unit of measurement for how long the present is. And I think that's because the present isn't actually a thing. It's just that we are able to comprehend everything from past to future as a flow, as what we call duration. And that's why, to a certain extent, there are perhaps fixed points, a fate or a destiny. And let me uh, explain it this way. Let's say we have something like an ant, a little insect, and we put that ant on a giant photograph. And the ant is incapable of seeing the entire photograph at once, but it's able to walk across pixel by pixel. And so the ant goes back and forth like a little scanner. And it scans the whole thing pixel by pixel, and then finally it makes it to the last pixel, and boom, now the whole entire big picture flashes before the ant's eyes, and it dies. Uh, and it may be that humans are doing something like that because you hear about people saying, my life flashed before my eyes, and then I died, in those cases where people come back. And so uh, I'm not sure that we can literally divide the past from the future with this thing called the present. We simply are saying that uh, uh, the present is any moment within this whole experience that the person is actually perceiving uh, or the organism is, perce is perceiving based upon that particular position of consciousness within space-time. Now, as far as exploration goes, uh, to me, it seems pretty clear that most of what we still have to learn is below the ocean. Uh, I think there is still plenty of mountain exploration left to be done, but satellites have helped us tremendously with that as well. Uh, and, you know, I've I've gone off on some pretty extensive camping trips, and it's not rare for you to feel like that you're in the middle of nowhere and you'll find a beer can somewhere. And so, you know, somebody's been here at some point. Um, but the ocean, you know, it's it's such a physical challenge to get down there. That when I was living in Puerto Rico and I would see this incredible footage of these craft, UFOs, what they often called USOs, that would disappear into the water. They would be you know, zipping around in the sky and bouncing in and out of the – and then they fly into the water and, and vanish near places like what we call the Puerto Rico Trench, which is almost 30,000 feet deep. It's the wow. deepest point in the Atlantic Ocean. I would think to myself, there's something down there. And I don't know if it's quite at the level of Atlantis, but I do believe that eventually we're going to find out that there, whatever this exotic technology is, this exotic civilization is that's flying around that we keep we keep getting documentation of, you know, uh, with our our cameras on from fighter jets and and, and aircraft carriers. Uh, they have something elaborate under the water that we are going to discover, and right now we just don't have the technology to properly explore it.
Right. I, I agree. Instead of looking out there, we need to be looking maybe down there. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I want to work in one more question from the YouTube live chat. Jeannie Braun uh, has a question. What are the most surprising results you've ever achieved using unusual methods or processes? The one that stands out in my mind, Jeannie, is that I, and I was I was talking about the Brown Mountain Lights, and in 2004, my team and I made the cover of a science journal called Electric Spacecraft, because in the laboratory, we were able to create a plasma chamber and create this glowing ball of energy floating in midair inside this chamber that looked very much like one of the Brown Mountain Lights. Uh, I explain more about how we did that in my latest edition of Strange Things, but as we were standing there looking at this ball of light, which we had we had created by reproducing a lot of the conditions there that we found on that mountain, we started saying out loud, I wonder if this has some connection to the UFOs and the flying saucers that people report seeing around Brown Mountain. And as soon as we said that, this glowing ball of plasma transformed before our eyes into a saucer floating there in midair. It was as, the, as if this was a conscious, sensitive medium that had literally changed shape just because our topic of discussion changed shape. It was reflecting what we were talking about. And we got a picture of that and video footage of that. And let me tell you, that right there symbolizes much of what we've been talking about this whole show and much of what this work is all about in general. It's about the idea that you, your consciousness is not something that's just isolated from the world around you. It's the opposite. We are a part of the world around us in the most intimate way. We are creators. We are interacting with it. And sometimes these strange things that we are seeing are just projections of what's happening inside of, of us, inside our heads, our minds. And by understanding that relationship better, uh, we are going to find that we have much more control over the world than we think. All right. Great question, Jeannie. And uh, as always, a brilliant answer. We just have a couple minutes here. One of the topics we didn't touch on, and this was the subject of, uh, of Strange Things, uh, one of your episodes, was psychokinesis. And uh, you actually offer some tips on moving objects with, with our minds. Yeah, you know, the first thing to realize is that that is not such a far-fetched concept. Going back to the mind-body relationship, the reason that you can move your body by thinking, I want to move my body, has something to do with a telekinetic response. I think I want my arm to move, and it moves. I say, I want my arm to move, and that makes electrical signals flow, and if everything's connected properly, the arm moves. That's almost a form of telekinesis. The question becomes, how far outside the body can that expand? And one of the simple things you can do to practice with this is get yourself a jar and just blow some smoke into it. You don't, Even if you're not a smoker, get a candle, make some smoke somehow, and capture that smoke in that jar. And sit there, you know, you, you should do this outside, of course, and just stare at that smoke in that jar and see if you can start making it shift from the top to the bottom or the bottom to the top. 
And you'll start to find that you can do this pretty easily. And you might even be able to take it to the point where you can go outside and look up at a cloud and think, I want this cloud to separate and break apart. And you can start breaking that up with your eyes. And as this goes on and on, you can keep advancing until you can float a water pedal on top of a bowl of water and uh, and make it move. Or you might cut out a little... Uh, try or actually a little um, square piece of paper and fold it into a pyramid and balance it on top of a needle point and try to make it spin clockwise or counterclockwise and you gradually keep developing this and you'll be amazed at how you can actually do some tricks that are almost like what you see the jedis do in the star wars movies <laughs> remarkable remarkable uh what's coming up next on strange things the podcast you know what? I think what I'm going to do, I, I've been so busy with this conference I produced and everything else, I'm behind on emails from listeners. And I get the best emails from listeners telling me about crazy stories. And like, for example, I have this guy who emailed me the other day, and he sent me a picture of something that he captured in his his bedroom at night, which it makes the, the hair stand up on the back of my neck when I look at it. And uh, so I think what I'm going to do next is uh, is sit down and, and, and record one with just I'm catching up on correspondence and, and the reports I've gotten from all over the world. But now I record these things weeks in advance. So the new one that's going to come out, I'm pretty sure, uh, is about werewolves. So uh, And I've got a field, an actual field report from a guy who's a friend of mine in Germany where they supposedly killed the last werewolf, and that opens up a Pandora's box of all kinds of crazy stuff. Fantastic. All right. Can't wait. Strange Things, strangethingsshow.com to subscribe, part of the Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Joshua, I don't know where these two hours went. We need six. Uh, so thank you so much. It's always great talking to you, and uh, I really enjoyed tonight's conversation. Well, as always, you're a fantastic host, a wonderful show, and uh, hey, it's, it's always a lot of fun. So thank you for having me, and we'll talk again soon. All right, Joshua, you be well. JoshuaPWarren.com. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Carlos Cagini for technical production, Ryan White for producing the live stream, and uh, we'll be back next week, Gary Hesseltine and Don Schmidt. Uh, on uh, their new UFO, International UFO Research Organization. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.